Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Child care for Sunday night, June 2nd. That is when Gary Crowell will be here. That's coming right up. Gary Crowell from Rama, China, right? He was here a couple years ago. Uh, tremendous man of God, great speaker, great missionary. He will have some wonderful uh, information from what he's doing, what God is doing in that part of the world. And he will be with us Sunday night where he was, is going to minister on prayer and share with us uh, just he's got a real passion. What, what he actually uh, offered to do when he, he was looking at our church calendar and he said, I noticed you have a prayer meeting on Monday night. Actually, his, his travel secretary was sharing all this with me and said he expressed interest in coming and, and sharing at that. And so I said, well, that's, that's a smaller meeting than a church service. But if you'd be willing to, to do that, would you be willing to just minister on prayer Sunday night and specifically share with us how to pray for missionaries? And he jumped on that opportunity. I think that's gonna, that would be a blessing for the church. I encourage you, number one, to be there. Uh, number two, if you can uh, bless those with young children by uh, serving in child care, that would be great. And as always, come prepared to be a blessing. Amen? All right, Ephesians. We are still in the book of Ephesians, and we, this is part three. Last week, we talked about our inheritance as children of God. Uh, this you know, Paul's letter to the Christians in Ephesus, and remember, I think I mentioned this the first week. If I didn't, it was the second week, that this was a letter that was meant to be circulated among all the churches in that region. But it makes it abundantly clear that God's plan in the finished work of Christ is not just to get us to heaven after we die so we can receive our inheritance there. Now, heaven is super important. Uh, like, you know, Pastor Mike just referring to uh, Jim Ashley going to heaven. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned this to you. I was talking to somebody about it. Maybe it was you guys. Keith Hershey, when he was uh, here a few weeks ago, had uh, several conversations with him, and he's known so many people over the years, so many ministers. And so he would say, hey, did you know Brother so-and-so? Did you know Pastor so-and-so? And he would start to tell a story about how they impacted his life, and he'd say, well, he went to heaven back in... 2003. He went to heaven last year. I never heard him once say he passed or he died. He always just said he went to heaven. And that's an important distinction, isn't it? Isn't it? Man, I'm not dying. I'm going to heaven. But some people are going to hell. We need to remember that too. Uh, No, his saving work raises us from death and raises us with Christ, in Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God, The Father, in the place of absolute authority, he is over all other power, dominion, authority, and all enemies are under his feet. And we are the body of Christ, so they are under our feet. Right? Remember this from last week? So uh, we looked at the first of two great prayers in this letter. We see that Paul's heart is simply uh, that there, and that our eyes would be opened to see just how extravagant this salvation is. We see that's essentially what he's praying in that first prayer. I just pray that, that, you, that you will see this for what it is and how big it is. And, and uh, also in, in chapter 2, last week, we began chapter 2, 
And we talked about this famous passage, especially verses 8 through 10, where it says, By grace you have been saved uh, through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. And you are not uh, saved by your good works. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. Uh, We are saved not by our good works, but we are saved for good works. He has created a lifetime of good works. He's laid these things out for us that we should walk in them. And now we pick it up in verse 11. Oh, my. Praise you, Lord, that my strength is not diminished, neither is my eye dim. means I'm going to read this without my reading glasses. Ephesians chapter 2, what did I say, verse 13? No, 11. Beloved, I beg you, I'm in the wrong book here, sorry. Off to a great start. Can't even see which book am I? I can, I can see it. I just, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And stop there. What we are returning here to is a theme that ought to be pretty familiar to us by now. He is acknowledging that there is indeed a covenant between God and Israel, between God and the Jew, the circumcision, all right? And that there wasn't, God wasn't in covenant with the Gentiles. And Paul's, he's saying here, and we know Paul's passionate about this. We just got through with Galatians a little while ago, and he's talking about these Judaizers and how Paul, coming from a very strong Jewish background, one of the cases he always makes, we see him make it in Romans, we see him make it in Galatians, we see him making it here, he made it in Corinthians too, that in Christ there is no longer this division between Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile. They've been brought near now. The, uh, the Jews, some of them anyway, those that we call, you know, reading these passages, we call them the Judaizers. Remember who they were. They were the ones who were Jews, who became Christians, but who still had it in mind that once the Gentiles wanted to be converted or even were converted, they had to adopt Jewish custom, Jewish law. Uh, I guess they would interpret Jesus' salvation this way, that God, through Jesus, has opened the way for Gentiles to enter into this Jewish covenant. Then they can be circumcised and keep the law with us and enjoy the benefits of being God's covenant people. There is this wall between Jew and Gentile, but Jesus has become the door through which the Gentile can enter and make peace with God. But if we read on in verse 14, no, yes, right? Yeah. For he himself, Ephesians 2.14, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished it in his flesh, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create himself, in himself, one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. 
And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the, to the Father. The wall that Paul refers here to actually is a literal and a figurative wall. There were physical walls around the temple complex that were there to keep Gentiles from entering in. Okay? There were walls within the temple to keep separate the priests and the laity. There were walls in the synagogue to separate men and women. And of course, there were cultural walls. Jews were not allowed to enter the homes of Gentiles or they would be uh, considered ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. And this was a big deal. The whole idea of these walls and this separation, we can, I'll show you one great example of this. Back in Acts chapter 21, beginning in verse 27, now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing, the, seeing him in the temple, talking about Paul, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he has also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. So this was a big deal. I don't think Paul had even uh, brought Trophimus into the temple, but this is what they assumed since they saw him with him. This is an Ephesian, this is a Greek, and they brought him into our temple. So... This separation was, was still very, very strong in the minds of even some Christians, so the Jewish believers. So what's Paul saying here in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 to 18? That Christ has removed this middle wall, this wall. We know, and Paul knew, and the Ephesians knew, that there was ultimately a wall. The, the big wall that mattered was the wall of sin that separated all mankind from God. But this middle wall, this uh, secondary wall, also separated Jew from Gentile. And, and Paul is saying, Christ broke that, that wall down. This was not a Gentile problem. It never really was. It's a sin problem. And that sin actually put us in a state of enmity, made us enemies of God. And that enmity itself was put to death at the cross. And now there are no second-class Christians. Verse 18 again. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father, the Jews and the Greeks. We know that in Christ, no, there's no longer male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, but Christ in all, right? He has made all of us to be his body, his family, and there is no rank when it comes to our background or what we came out of. And of course, again, tough pill for some of these Jews to swallow. Now, let's read on here. In verse 19, it says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Now this is a pretty significant passage too, 
it's, it's a very, this is a very New Testament passage, but there's a phrase in there that deserves some attention. I like the picture he's drawing, that we are all now, all of us who are saved, there's no such thing as a foreigner anymore. We're all part of the same material, and we are being built into this house, a household, a dwelling place. Now, and this is, this, we remember now that each one of us, individually, our bodies are temples for the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, when you walk out of here by yourself, when you are driving by yourself, when you are far from your family or far from church, the Holy Spirit still dwells in you, right? The Spirit of Christ is still with you, right? And yet, there is, again, something powerful and something uh, important about when we are together forming the temple and being the body. This is what Jesus has in mind, us being built together. And the foundation, it says here, is the apostles and the prophets, and Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Now, and you can think, you do a search on the word foundation in the Bible, say, well, no other foundation can be laid except the one which was laid, Jesus Christ. Well, how can we have a foundation of apostles and prophets then? Jesus is the only foundation. Well, a couple things. When, if, if you look at this from the top down, he starts talking about the house. We're being fitted together a house on the, on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, and Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. We've talked about this. Many of you know this. A cornerstone, when they're talking about, you know, we have uh, like ceremonial cornerstones now. They've got little, they're hollow and you put stuff in them, right? These, these little uh, time capsule type deals. A true cornerstone in a building was not only needed to be the strongest and firmest stone, and they would put these at the corners, but the cornerstone was also the pattern. Every stone had to be straight and perfect. And so they would start with the cornerstone, perfectly measured, and then they would cut the others using the cornerstone as the measurement. And then when they cut the next one, they took it back to the cornerstone. They didn't use the one they just cut. They would measure everything against the original cornerstone. So Jesus being the cornerstone. Now, the apostles and prophets uh, might surprise you to learn that there is not universal agreement on who the apostles and prophets are that he's talking about here. We are going to see in Ephesians chapter 4 that the ministry, one of the ministry gifts that Jesus gave the church is the ministry of the apostle. Now, I don't believe any of the ministry gifts have gone away because the word of God never says they did, any more than the spiritual gifts. You understand? We, we, we looked at the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 don't believe those have gone away either. We're going to look at the ministry gifts in Ephesians chapter 4. So some people call the five-fold ministry gifts. And apostles and prophets are both named. And some say that what Paul is talking about here is that, simply the New Testament concept of the apostles and prophets. I think there is pretty wide agreement. It's generally agreed anyway that the apostles he's talking about are the foundational apostles, the 12 apostles of Christ. Paul, in this case, really, although not claiming it, being the 12th, because Judah, or Judas was uh, kicked out for obvious reasons. 
So Paul sort of, he was, he was the Holy Spirit's replacement. And these foundational apostles, they do have, we see them in, in uh, the book of Revelation. They do hold a special foundational place in terms of uh, our doctrinal foundation, right, and the preaching of the gospel, the writings that we have, the New Testament we have. It's, uh, essentially, we attribute to the apostles, all right? And prophets, there are some who make a pretty strong case that, okay, they agree that that's the apostles we're talking about. But when he says apostles and prophets, he's talking about the New Testament prophets. And the reason for that is, in chapter 3, it says in verse 5, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. All right? The problem I have with this is it never really tells us. You could look at commentary after commentary, and it never gives you an example. Well, who are the prophets? We know there were people who prophesied in the book of Acts, for instance. But if you're distinguishing between the apostles and the prophets, who are the New Testament foundational prophets? If you've got a really good answer to that, tell me later. Don't shout it out now. I really do think what he's really saying here, the, I think the foundation of apostles and prophets is the foundation of the New Testament and the Old Testament. I think when he says prophets, he's talking about the prophetic writings of the whole Old Testament. That is our foundation. In other words, what? It means we don't throw our Old Testament away just because we are New Testament believers. If I felt like that, we would not have spent three and a half years in the Old Testament before we got to the New Testament. We know so much about who God is and his principles. Not only that, the Old Testament lays the prophetic groundwork that's necessary to understand the significance of the ministry of Jesus Christ. So the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. But again, this is what's interesting. Going from top to bottom, the household is being built on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. Well, wait a second. Doesn't Jesus kind of fit in between the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament? Jesus was there from the beginning. He is present there in these Old Testament writings, superintending these writings. They had a glimpse of these things, but even they didn't understand the fullness of what they were writing. They longed to, and again, they could see some of the significance, but Jesus is the one who was superintending all of this, all the prophetic writings, the prophetic sayings, the preaching and everything, Old Testament and New. He is the cornerstone of all of it. And this is what we are being built on the foundation of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the ministry of the apostles and the prophets. So, I still, uh, again, there's not, not everybody agrees with that particular interpretation. It's simply the way that I lean. Uh, Paul goes then, in, in chapter 3, he goes on to talk about the mystery. We see this, this word a lot, the mystery of the church. Let me read the first few verses here. Uh, Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. If indeed, I like that too, by the way. Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. I mentioned the first week that Paul is actually writing this uh, from prison. He's been imprisoned by Rome. He's waiting trial. He, and it's house arrest, okay? 
Now, he's not in, he's not literally, he's not chained to, to a dungeon wall at this point. He's got the freedom to write. But he calls, he doesn't say, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Rome. I'm the prisoner of Christ for you Gentiles. He can see the value in this. He knows that he is where he is because of the call of Jesus Christ on his life. And that the good that's going to come out of this imprisonment is for the Gentile world, including us. How did we benefit directly from Paul's imprisonment? We have these letters because of Paul's imprisonment. Paul was a man on the go. He moved, he traveled, he had this passion. But when he was in prison, he had time to sit and write. And these letters have been preserved. And they make up a good portion of our New Testament. Now, let me me just kind of take a little side journey here. If you did something really stupid, I mean bad, and you wound up in prison, I mean because you, uh, you drank and drove and killed somebody, and you went to prison. Or if you can think of something, what's the, what's the people you get the maddest at? People you like to see in prison because of the things they do. do. How many of you know that even if you do something stupid that lands you in jail or prison, God can still use you? That God can take the most wretched crime and the wretched life and the wretched background and turn that around and actually bring something good out of that? A testimony or maybe a, a prison Bible study. Uh, we've all heard these stories that God turns these people's lives around. But we, we have to be honest and recognize the distinction that God didn't cause these things to happen in order to produce that ministry. Can we agree about that? God didn't cause you to go commit a crime or kill somebody or do anything stupid that lands you in prison. Now, we don't give up hope on people that are there, or if we wind up there, something bad, if something bad happens to us because of something stupid we did, and God brings something good out of it, we can't say, well, see, God caused the whole thing in the first place. He didn't. But God can redeem everything. Paul is in prison because of Jesus. Not because of something stupid Paul did. He's still right smack dab in the center of God's will for his life. All right? It's not like, well, Paul made a mistake or the devil attacked him. No, he is fulfilling God's plan for his life. And God is bringing, obviously bringing good out of it because he's orchestrating this. So he really is a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery as I've already written briefly, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. What is this mystery? He just told you what this mystery is. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. We see the word mystery, and sometimes we're like, wow, I'm going to search through there. and What's this mystery he's talking about? It's right there. It's just that we're so accustomed to this truth that we forget how mysterious and how powerful and how world-changing this was. Wow, it isn't the Jewish church and the Gentile church. It's all the church of Jesus Christ. 
read on with uh, yeah, verse 8. Let me read through verse 13. To me, who am less than the least of all saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you which is your glory. Verse 10 there says, well, back up here, keeping everything in context. God's given me a revelation of this mystery, and the gift that he's given me and the calling he's placed on my life is for you, to reveal these things to you, the Gentile church. This is my special ministry, is to preach to you guys so that the manifold wisdom of God would be, uh, would be manifested in your lives, that you could be a partaker of all of this. And in verse 10 there it says, to the intent now that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. We are supposed to be demonstrating, we the church are supposed to be demonstrating who we are and what we are and the wisdom of God and the power of God to who? To angels. Now, I believe that this, uh, it says principalities and powers in the heavenly places, that they're, 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 you can apply that to demonic powers. Okay? But we already know we've been given authority over demons. Have we been given authority over angels? That's not what it's saying. We're simply supposed to be displaying uh, I spent more time in commentary around this passage just because I got kind of sucked into it, reading some of these, comment, uh, these comments that these uh, great scholars down through the ages have made, and so many of them used the same phrase, that this world is the theater that displays the outworking of God's plans for the angels. For the angels? Who are the angels? We could do a whole sermon on that. And we will sometime, probably in Hebrews. But they're God's ministering spirits. They're created beings that do the will of God. They're intelligent. And we see them fulfilling specific roles in the Old and New Testament. We see them appearing, taking the form of men and speaking, uh, you know, it, bringing, causing uh, believers and others to shake in their boots. But it says... Let me read this uh, sh short passage out of 1 Peter. 1 Peter 1. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. Sorry. <laughs> Let me start in verse, in verse 10. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that, not to themselves but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. And we see this in, in, 
see one, one place in the Bible that says uh, man has been made a little lower than the angels. And we see in Hebrews where we've been made a little higher than the angels. This could simply be a reference to the fact that we have been as redeemed mankind. We now outrank angels. But the point is that, 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 that there's, a, there's two errors we can fall into when it comes to angels. And one is to worship them as, as being some sort of, well, they're in this, this place between us and God. And we, every time we see a man falling to his knees to worship an angel, the angel corrects him. In the Old Testament, too. No, 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 don't worship me. But the other one is to take this attitude that, well, since I outrank angels, and since they're ministering spirits, and since minister means serve, I can order my angels around. Yo, angel, go do this for me. That's not how it works either. They're, they're, they, they follow God's orders, and he will order them around on our behalf. Okay? Angels aren't our butlers any more than God is our genie. Okay? But, even though when we see biblical descriptions of angels, they're glorious, they're bright, they're shiny, they're big, they fly. Angels look at us and see us as inheritors of the manifold wisdom of God and all the things that Paul has described and is just about to describe here in Ephesians. And what are they doing? They're like, what are they going to do with all this power? What is the church going to do? Do they even get how much they've been given? Let's watch this. Angels are passing around the popcorn, watching what we, the believers, the church, is going to do. And most of the church is wandering around just saying, well, boy, when I get to heaven, I'll be like the angels. And the angels are like, you've got more than we have right now. What are you doing with it? And we're supposed to be demonstrating it. The church is supposed to be demonstrating this. And so Paul's saying, he's like he's reading their minds. He shares with all this power. The angels themselves want to see what's up. And then the reader's like, yeah, but what kind of power lands a guy in jail? And Paul says, don't let my situation shake your faith. That's what he means when he says, Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. I'm here, again, for God's purposes. I'm here for your benefit. I'm not shaken by this, so don't let my imprisonment shake you. Don't let it stop you from believing that God has given you this power. And then he launches into the second great prayer in, in this letter. Beginning in verse 14, we read, Still in chapter 3. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may, well, may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Wow. What a prayer. 
And I will absolutely echo what hundreds and thousands of ministers have said. Look at these prayers and pray them over yourself. Paul was writing what he prayed over the Ephesians, but this is God's will for us that we would know these things. And the way I would wrap this second prayer up, if I, had to, if I had to just reduce it to a sentence or two, is that you will not be filled with all the fullness of God that you are destined to be filled with until you comprehend the magnitude of his love. That you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Once you do, though, once you realize that the God who saved you is not a God who stands afar off, wagging his finger at us and saying, now you did bad and I had to send my son to die for you, so don't you do it again. But it was such this great love that, that, that moved him to do this for us so that he could draw us close. And when you really comprehend, not, that doesn't just mean you understand, it means you experience you know, I use the phrase, get your head around or get your arms around. That's a good picture of comprehension. Get your arms around the love of Christ in all of its fullness, all of its height, depth, width, and length. Once we really understand that he loves us, you know what's going to happen? Then we're going to start asking. We're going to start speaking. We're going to start declaring in faith. And the things you ask for are not going to stretch God. They're not going to challenge God. They are not going to test his limits. Why? Because he's able to do more than you can ask for. He's able to do abundantly more. Wait. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly more than you can ask He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly more than you can ask or even think. So when you ask God for something, don't entertain the thought for a second that this is beyond him. It's not. And that's not usually what keeps us from asking, is it? Once we acknowledge that God is God, we know he can give us anything. But the language here is not just speaking to his ability. This exceeding abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think is rooted in what? Comprehending the height, width, depth, and length of his love. Yeah, he's God. He's all-powerful. And he loves me with an everlasting love, with a love that sees me as righteous, now, and this is where we've got to be a little bit more like kids, little kids, little children. Because little children, what's a, a funny, funny little uh, uh, meme or something the other day that says, having kids is like having, wow, I think you read it to me. It's like having little, short little friends who think you're rich or something like that. <laughs> kids just don't hesitate to ask for stuff, do they? Can I have this? Can I have this? Will you buy me this? Can we have this? I mean, I don't know how long that lasts, but it hasn't stopped in my house. When we know that our 
Daddy, our Father, has unlimited resources and unlimited love for us, we're going to ask for some things, aren't we? But if we love him, what's that mean? It means we're going to ask for the right things. And we need to be excited about the abundant supply of the things that we need to do the mission we're called to do. Like I said last week, all this and heaven too. He didn't just, he didn't send Jesus, give Jesus, to die just to save you from hell. Although he did that, and we can never forget that. He saved you so he could place you in his body, in his church, so that you, so that we could demonstrate his wisdom, his love, and his power, not just to the angels, but to the world. He saved you so that he could use you to save others. Praise and worship team, you can be coming up here while I make this last uh, illustration. You know, uh, you join the military. You have the option of, of pursuing different career paths, and they offer uh, tons of different schools. And you graduate from these schools within the Army, and that qualifies you to wear certain gear, certain badges, certain ribbons that will speak to anybody else in the army. All they got to do is take a quick look at your uniform. They'll know where you've been, what you know, what your rank is. I mean, now everybody gets berets. The black beret used to be the, the, the part of the uniform of the, the rangers. Now they have the tan beret. Uh, green beret. You know, they're really not called green berets. They're called special forces. But the Green Beret is what lets people know, ah, there's something special. This person has been to some pretty intense training. People go to, they put themselves through the rigors of, uh, of SEAL training. And uh, they get benefits for this, right? They get paid for this. They get to wear certain things, certain insignia. They get to tell the great stories. It's some, and, and for some people, it's like, Man, I, I, boy, wouldn't you just like... I used to make this joke about ranger school all the time. I didn't go to ranger school. I had one brief opportunity to go to ranger school, but I realized when I really did a heart check that I didn't want to go to ranger school. I just wanted to have gone to ranger school. <laughs> but, yeah, you, there are benefits. And some of it's just the pride, the unit pride, being able to say you've been there and done that. But do you think, ultimately, the army sends people to these schools and gives them this training and gives, this, uh, gives them this equipment just because they know this person's going to want to get a tattoo that says they did it? Does the military invest that kind of money and training into soldiers for the benefit of the soldiers? No. They do that to make them effective. They do that so they can use them for certain specific difficult jobs. Now, they benefit as well. The skills that they learn and develop at these schools, the skills that make them effective, also improve their odds of surviving. They benefit from this training. I had a friend, it wasn't a friend, it was an acquaintance I made. I was a brand new second lieutenant, and uh, I got... uh, blessed with the opportunity to go out to California and spend a few weeks with our mother unit, the 7th Infantry Division. And we were hiking through the desert mountains there in, uh, I don't know, north of San Francisco. And I got to hang out with this uh, uh, 
it was a platoon size. Uh, well, it was a platoon, infantry platoon. But I hung out mostly in the area where the platoon sergeant, this E7 guy, who was the cockiest but funniest guy. He was one of the most competent soldiers I've ever known. He just was so comfortable and knew his job so well that everything just seemed easy for him. And we had uh, hours of conversation over the course of the time that I spent with this platoon. And I remember him saying this, making this statement once. He, he said, I'll never get killed in a war. I'm too good at my job. And then went on to say, I'll probably, I'll probably uh, die in a drunk driving accident or, so, or something stupid like that. Now, I, I, I realized then, and I realize now, and he probably did too, you can't make a statement like, I'll never get killed in war when your job, if, if you're a soldier and you wind up going to war. But I, I still appreciated the confidence behind that statement. I really know what I'm doing. I have learned enough to stay alive in a combat situation. I like that. And that's the benefit. Yeah. The army sees it as this is an effective tool. He can not only do this job, he can lead men doing this job. And he is worth this investment. We have done this because we are going to use him for something. But he, but he gets the benefit of that training as well. Same with us. God has invested a great deal in you. Every one of you as individuals, and he has invested a lot into us as a church and into us as the body of Christ. And there is no getting around it, no matter how hard you try. Well, how hard some people try. We know better than to try. You can't get around the fact that there are benefits to being in this position. What do I like about being in the body of Christ? Let me count the ways. In the body of Christ, there is no lack. In the body of Christ, there is no sickness. In the body of Christ, there is no defeat. There is victory. There is power. All of this in everything, all the enemies, all my enemies are under my feet. Why? Because I'm in the body of Christ and they're under his feet. There's the very real tangible benefits, the fellowship, the love, getting to be with you guys and do life together with you guys. These are all great benefits. But what are the benefits for? So that we can carry out the mission he gave us to live the gospel, preach the gospel, set the captive free, heal the sick, raise the dead. Right? He gave us these benefits, these powers, these privileges for others. God's word lasts forever. People last forever. Everything else is going to be dust. So you want to do something that lasts forever? You share God's eternal word with people. They're the only thing you can bring with you. Don't you want to be a part of this? Speaking maybe now to the person or people in here who maybe have not yet made that commitment to Jesus Christ. God made a great commitment to you. He paid a dear, deep price to buy you out of death, out of hell, out of the power of the devil so that he could invest in you eternal life his eternal presence and the power and the wisdom and ultimately the love that we experience with that presence. And you get to go to heaven. And you can reject that gift even though the, the, the price that Jesus paid 
was enough for the salvation of everybody. It only covers if we believe. You must confess Jesus Christ as Lord. You must believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And if you do, you'll be saved. And all of these benefits are yours. And you get in on the mission. If you've not done that and you want to, now's your time. I'm going to pray a prayer thanking God for his word. A couple other things. And when I'm done praying, you want to give your heart to Jesus Christ. You invite him into your life. You want to confess him as Lord. You want to become a Christian. I want you to come up here and let me lead you in a simple prayer. If you made a confession unto salvation before, but you have not been feeling, or maybe you just never realized how much is wrapped up in that salvation until today. You read these prayers of Paul, you see what he wrote, and you realize, wow, wow, all I ever did was receive salvation. I never received that fullness. I have not yet begun to comprehend what is the height and depth and width and length of the love of Christ. How can I be filled with all the fullness of God? Maybe you need to reconnect, recommit, rededicate your life to the one who saved you. I would be glad, I'd, I'd consider it a privilege if you would let me pray with you as well. You can kneel at the altar. You can cry out from your chair. But don't leave here without, without making that connection. If you need to come up from somewhere, come up. What do you, what do you wait, why would you want to waste another day? Whether we're talking salvation or recommitment, why would you waste another why did you wait another day when God's got things for you to do people for you to encounter and change starting today let's pray Heavenly Father thank you thank you for these letters thank you for this letter thank you for these prayers thank you for the precious promise of indwelling us with your fullness filling us with the fullness of God I thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross for me, for us, for the world. Thank you for the blood that's been shed. And thank you, Lord. Thank you for the assurance of heaven. Thank you, Lord, I pray now, today, that our eyes are opened so that we can comprehend the magnitude of your love for us so that we can comprehend how much power has been invested in us through the finished work of Jesus Christ so that none of us are content with just being saved. I pray, Lord, that everybody in here is determined to be used by you for your glory. And we thank you for the benefits that are ours as we are used in that process. Finally, Lord, for right now, I pray if there's anybody in the sound of my voice who does not know you as Lord, does not know Jesus Christ as Savior, that you would speak to them as only you can, draw them as only you can, and convict the sinner of their need, grant them the wisdom to respond to that conviction, the humility to come up and receive that salvation, the boldness to do it now and publicly, Thank you, Father, 
for your love. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your presence in this place. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.